0: Greetings and welcome to HPNA's Podcast Corner, your place for hospice and palliative nursing continual learning. I'm your host, Julie Tanner, certified hospice and palliative care registered nurse and educator for HPNA. Thank you for joining today's education. Greetings and welcome to HPNA's Podcast Corner. Today's topics for stories from the field. I'm from Dr. Christopher Halsey, Bereavement Services Manager and Co-Chairman of the Ethics Committee for VITAS Healthcare of Greater Philadelphia. Today's topic will be surrounding spiritual aspects of care, and we welcome Dr. Halsey.
1: Hi, thank you, Julie. I'm, I'm honored to be here today uh, to be part of this amazing podcast.
0: So Dr. Halsey, can you please share with us a little bit about yourself?
1: Yes, well, I started out working uh, in healthcare the healthcare industry, for, I've been in it for over 20 years. Uh, it's been a uh, rewarding experience for me. I started out as a medical assistant years ago. I wanted to be a nurse. And what happened was when I graduated high school um, and applied for, of course, uh, my prerequisites and I applied to go to nursing school and there was a waiting list back then. So this was back in the early
0: 90s. I remember those days. Yeah,
1: yeah. And so they say, well, do all your uh, your prerequisites and and there's a two-year waiting list. And I'm like, oh, I don't wanna wait two years. And so I ended up doing some prerequisites but ended up going into the medical assistant program and uh, kind of graduated from that did some other stuff, kind of worked my way up in healthcare during that time, uh, becoming a clinical coordinator uh, for a couple of medical practices, and then worked my way up to being what we call the general manager for multiple medical practices at one point. At one point I was managing two surgical practices and an endocrinology practice at the same time. And um, it was during that time I kind of felt in that role as the general manager, I didn't really feel fulfilled Um, but I had a um, uh, a spiritual component to the work that I had been doing. Uh, I had already been in ministry uh, for a lot of years at that time and uh, it was during that time when I said, what else can I do that will really impact uh, not just other people, but what can I do to fulfill me? And I remember as a manager, I went to my office put my head down on my desk, and uh, of course, being a spiritual God that I am, I actually said a little prayer. And uh, during that time of prayer, that, the few moments in my office, uh, it came to me, and uh, I said, hmm, what is it that you like to do um, with the least amount of effort that will bring you the most joy and most fulfillment? And I start, and I, the answer to that was, um, I'm a great listener. I enjoy listening to people uh, and possibly offering advice if need be Uh, because I know in my ministry there were people who uh, always called on me for questions and advice and direction and I was always the one kind of giving some type of insight to help them. And so it was during that time where I said, you know, let me explore chaplaincy. And I started out as a chaplain for uh, the local police department in Philadelphia and uh, was supporting those officers as well as those families. Uh, and my main role, and it was a volunteer position, my main role was to be the, um, the, uh, the extension between the community and the uh, police department. And then from there moved on to um, working in end of life and becoming a hospice chaplain uh, and got my first hospice chaplaincy job uh, uh, once I, I took off a couple years from um, um, general managing and, and uh, started a church um, and uh, was working this church that I just was graced to start for about two years uh, and then went into chaplaincy and kind of got a job as a hospice chaplain and, and really delved into uh, that particular work.
0: What a remarkable story of your journey. Uh, I'm in awe (laughs) that's, thank you for sharing that. When, when you find yourself working within the hospice chaplain role, what do you find the most difficult aspect of that, of that role?
1: So I would, I would say the difficult pieces would be, um, seeing the family dynamics. Uh, families who've had challenges and uh, where they have a loved one who's at the end of their life um, they're dying actively dying and there's family distention everywhere you know I can remember a story of a of one family where uh, this one patient had uh, two daughters and uh, one lived uh, in the locally in the area and one lived out of state and mom was dying and they just could not get along and I remember I was on call that one weekend. I get the call from the one daughter. My daughter said to me, Yeah, my sister just called me and said that uh, you, are, you are going to come to my house and do an exorcism because I'm not cooperating with her. And so I laughed at her wow. and I said, Wow, well, I said, That's not true. I've never said that. And I said, What's going on? And she's telling me that you know her and daughter just—I mean, her and her sister just could not get along. And I, what I did was I encouraged them. I said, "Listen, mom. Um, she, based on all her signs and symptoms, she should have been passed on. But there's something holding her here. And could it be that it's the two of you not getting along? She's waiting for you all to mend whatever issues that are there in order for her to transition and have a peaceful, a peaceful death." Uh, and uh, that daughter, I mean, they listened to what I had to say, but the mom ended up dying. And uh, they actually had two memorial services, wow. one wow. out of state and one local. So that was like the, 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 the most challenging thing, just kind of getting families to rally around loved ones uh, who, was at, who, are, who are at the end of their life and really need that support, you know, during the most precious and delicate time in your life so just kind of being a guide to them is the most challenging piece in that particular moment in those particular situations
0: well we have the privilege today of not only having Dr. Halsey here with us but Connie Dolan our director of professional practice with HBNA has also joined us this afternoon so Connie I would like to invite you to to ask questions as well
2: um, so, I have two questions that I think are really interesting of your transition from uh, working with the police department, which i 'm sure had uh, very sudden crisis deaths in in my mind is actually a very natural Progression into hospice, but I think in terms of where you felt like your work went with some of the hospice patients where they had this time Was there anything from that experience of working with the police in this sudden crisis and sometimes really tragic? Endings versus with the hospice patients with more time of how you kind of blended some of that work
1: Well, I would say it was two things. There were, one time as a pastor working, um, there was a family uh, at our church who called me in to see um, their loved one. And it was the one woman, it was her father. And so, uh, the, the senior pastor couldn't go, so they sent me to, hey, listen, could you, the pastor said, hey, listen, could you please go and, and represent me and just kind of be a support to this family. Had never heard of hospice at that point, had in, had not had any type of experience with it. So I get to the hospital and the entire floor was family members for this one gentleman who needed some type of support. Family was crying and doctors had told him there was nothing more they could do um, for him uh, during that time. And I walk in and I immediately knew that this guy was dying. Like I'd never seen anybody actively dying. It was my first time, but I, it immediately, like, it was a connect. Like I knew he was dying. And, I, and to myself, I'm like, what do I say to his family? How do I bring them to the reality that their loved one is not going to wake back up? And so I, we stood around and, you know, I'm seeing, the, you know, his, you know, turn agitation, all that kind of stuff. And I, will, I said to them, um, well, let's pray. And we gather hands and all these people, it's been about 25, maybe 30 people uh, in this on that particular floor, we grab hands and I just pray for God's peace and will to happen in the life of the gentleman who was dying and in the life of the family to give them comfort in accepting what God's will was. And that was the word I used, what God's will was, because I didn't know what else to say. You know now, of course, I know that you know d- d- when someone's dying, it's the disease process that's that causes someone to decline, um, and so that was one piece that kind of brought me into the end of life care work. But then also several years later, uh, my grandmother was introduced to hospice, and I remember my grandmother at that time she was 86 years old and she was a faith abounding woman, very, very involved in her Baptist church. Uh, she was what we called a uh, church mother. Uh, in the church, and uh, I was kind of getting my feet wet in ministry and, you know, getting involved in, in church in an amazing way, and so uh, my, my, my uh, grandmother um, was diagnosed with some life-limiting illnesses, and uh, she was diabetic and things like that, and she decided that she didn't want to have any more treatment done. She didn't want to go back to the hospital. She didn't want to nothing else done for her. And so the, the doctors recommended uh, hospice. And so and I'm like, well, what is hospice? Like, what is this? And uh, my grandmother had spoken to one of her neighbors and the neighbor in turn told the family that, hey, listen, your grandmother said that um, she's made her peace with God and she's ready. And I'm like, what do you mean she made her peace with God? She's supposed to be praying. She's supposed to be believing God for her healing. She can't give up. What do you mean she made her peace with God? And so, of course, at that you know, I, we were taught never to talk back to our, our elders, and so I would never have said it to my grandmother. But in my heart, I'm like, how are, you, how are you giving up? This doesn't make sense. But then when I saw the hospice nurse come to her house, then I saw the social worker come, and then I saw the chaplain come, and I saw the team that was there to um, support not only my grandmother, but support us as the family, as we support her as uh, she's um, living her, her, her wish, her dying wish, honoring her, her request. And it was as a result of understanding that and seeing my grandmother having a good death which led me into being interested in going into uh, hospice care and working in, in the life care.
2: So I want to go back to something you said, which I find fascinating because you are a chaplain and you were talking about this part of um, the wording God's will, um, which I find fascinating because um, I've talked about that I think the hardest c- comment from me from patients, families and patients, is when they say to me as a, a clinician, not a chaplain, you know, it's God's will, you don't know what's going to happen. And I think for me sometimes to match that and mirror that to come back with a response, I feel often inadequate. And yet you just sort of said, and you learned that that wasn't the right word too. So it's kind of interesting of thinking in those situations, what is the best way for us to respond? How do we use ourselves in offering that spirituality before we can bring the chaplain in mm-hmm. so that we're not disregarding it but we're being respectful. Right.
1: So I always go back to the the disease process and what happens to the body. And I often say, especially those who are very religious, I say, well you listen, our our bodies aren't always designed to be here forever. You know, they break down, they get sick, cells change, all these things happen to us. And um eventually we're, we're all going to um, have to die one day. And it's a hard thing to, 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 uh, to swallow at times, but I often say, well, listen, death is part of life. You know, and it's not that, I believe it's not the end per se, that the, the loved one or the person who's now about to transition, they'll, they'll forever live in our hearts, their memory forever will forever be with us. Um, So their body will change and transition, but their spirit will live forever because we'll remember them and remember how they touched us and how they affected us and the legacy that they left behind uh, with us and for us.
2: So how do you think um, is the best way for us to help young clinicians who are social media savvy and are not used to doing face-to-face conversations, let alone these spiritual ones which have a little more weight to mm-hmm. them and seriousness to actually stay present in the room? Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I would say be aware of how they themselves deal with what are their thoughts of death and dying from a faith standpoint, uh, what, what, what's their um, belief system, if, if any, it could be religious, it could be uh, something else Um, But a person has to be aware. Clinicians have to be aware of their own um, uh, self-insight, for lack of a better word, um, to be able to help somebody else. And if they don't understand what they believe, then they will struggle with helping someone someone else. So it, it sometimes it's it's for chaplains and other clinicians. It's like to the extreme. So the chaplain will focus on it. they're not focus or train, they'll focus just on a religious aspect, where the other clinicians, like the nurses and other ones, will focus in on just the physical aspect of the person. Whereas both, it has to uh, come together, marry both of them. I've learned through the years and through my experience to work with both um, the the spiritual side as well as the physical side um, to get people to understand Uh, what they're typically going or what they're going through what they're experiencing basically
2: so one of the things that's going on right now in the country that's really interesting is that the number of unchurched undeclared religion or spirituality has gone up to like 50 percent um which has changed over the last 15 or 20 years and i think um I'm curious what you think about how do we work with that within hospice and palliative care when we've sort of made the assumption that people have come from something and they tell us they really don't have anything and yet we're still trying to figure out that spiritual side and and people don't even have a language for that
1: i would say respect what a person's belief system is i mean i've come across a number of people who don't have a belief system or they'll try to lean on what my belief system is. I remember one story, I had a gentleman whose mother was on our service, well, was on, on hospice service, and um, the family, oh, he said to me, oh, I said, well, what's your religious preference? And he says, well, I don't know, what's yours? And I said, well, you know, we're not here to talk about me, I'm here to support you, you know, what do you believe? He said, well, I believe in nature, I believe that things happen, Just they just happen. And um, and my mother believe, and his mother was a, a, a Protestant uh, Christian, where he had a totally different beliefs, and so I respected what he believed, and I said, well, um, I'm here to support you. So how does your response or your thought of nature, how does it bring you comfort during this time of supporting your mother as she's going through a transition? So respecting individuals. Um, thoughts and um, their process on how they deal with their beliefs whatever it may be i had one patient one time who um he just believed that when he died he was going to be this ball of uh dirt and just go back to wherever he came from. and i said where did did you where did you come from he said i came from my parents but i don't know where i'm going after this and i said well i'll support wherever you go wherever you feel as though you're you feel as though you're going to go, I'm here to support that.
2: Yeah, I think the challenge sometimes is, is wanting to be there for patients and making sure that we're being supportive enough. Because I think the most stressful question I've ever been asked by a patient was, are you a Christian? Mm-hmm. I can tell you, I, I it felt like a thousand hours, because I'm like, well, am I a Christian? Am I not? Have I been a good person? Have I not? How do I answer this patient? What if I don't say the right answer? Like, what are they... And, you know, I'm sure she was watching my whole face with all of those things. And she just looked at me and she said, all I want to know is, can we pray together? And I'm like, of course. But it was like such a, for me, I was taking it such a deep question, right. um, which was probably a little bit, you know, much, but I, you know, in trying to meet that and, and then I, we laughed. I said, I'm so sorry. Right. I was just trying to figure out to be respectful. And, and so I think we aren't um, as well versed on on just having those um, communications or conversations in a very non-threatening mm-hmm. curiosity way, um, particularly with people kind of getting polarized, and and so I think that this dying part, um, we need to learn better about having some of the conversation and then educating some of our younger people of of just. Being there Um, and that's what I love about watching chaplains is I I watch you all sometimes peeking in the room wanting to give space but just sort of a a presence of a comfort with oneself um, of really truly attentive listening Um, and I think also you know the other part of the chaplain role which I find incredibly helpful is the role that you're helping the patients and families and sometimes you're really helping us Um, And I think about a patient who I had who was from um, the Azor Islands and he was dying and his family wasn't going to be there and, and I'm trying to manage all these symptoms and I'm I could tell that I'm like, okay, I'm really focused. But I had our chaplain in the corner, and I would look over and he would just give me a nod and like, you're okay, Connie, you're doing okay. And I laughed later on. I said, you know, Michael, that was so helpful for me because I was so trying to do that, but I needed sort of some outside part. And if you had asked me at that moment, who would have been in the room with me? I wouldn't have told you necessarily it was the chaplain, but from then on, it was like, when I get in a difficult situation, my first call is to the chaplain, so the chaplain's in the room for me and that patient. And I think sometimes, you know, we don't have access to that, or um, I don't know in terms of chaplain availability, what you've found about that, if all chaplains would be comfortable with that, or if, if that's just a case-by-case case scenario.
1: No, I think that most chaplains would be comfortable with that because we're looking to be utilized, because we're part of the, we're, we are a part of the team, and when that team approaches in there, you um, dismiss or you um, uh, fail to use a tool, an individual, of discipline that's readily available to assist in that process. It's like it's like a surgeon you know, someone needs surgery, uh, you call the surgeon, right? Uh, and someone needs a specialty nurse, you call that specialty nurse in to help. If someone needs that spiritual support, you call on the clinical chaplain. And there's different types of chaplains, and a lot of people, a lot of people don't understand there's different specialties in chaplaincy. Um, so you call on the clinical chaplain, and that clinical chaplain will be there to support, you know,
0: so you just raised a really valid point, and Connie, I want to thank you again for lending your ear and your voice today for our for our podcast. Uh, I'm sure there'll be more to come with this as well. One of the things I wanted to pick up on was we, you had mentioned about the spiritual aspects of palliative care, and I'd like to know, how often are spiritual screenings conducted and who's responsible for that within the palliative
1: care team? So typically, the screen. So there's, there's two things. There's the screening, and then there's the assessments. Spiritual. There's spiritual screening, and there's spiritual assessments. The so spiritual spiritual strain, screening typically happens initially, and so that's usually based on a few questions. Questions, uh, short questions such as, um, what's the patient's uh, religious needs? Um, what's their uh, faith affiliation? Um, do they? Are they a person? do they need specific uh, religious observations or sacraments. Um, Whereas, and that's usually done again by uh, initial intake, typically. But then when you have the spiritual assessment, that's more of an in-depth look at the patient's spiritual makeup. And so the goal of this is to identify uh, the spiritual belief practices, resources that a person would possibly need, Um, that will be appropriate to their treatment plan Um, and so the screening is again one time the assessment happens in depth um, various times throughout the 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 persons um, on the on service uh, receiving uh, in the flight care um, treatment
0: thank you so what what would trigger a spiritual assessment
1: so that that's a good question So spirit assessment is, again, it's based on um, how can we as the uh, interdisciplinary team support the patient. So the nurse comes and does their part, the social worker comes, does their part, um, physician does their part, um, the volunteer does their part, home health aide does their part, uh, and the chaplain does their part. And so what, what triggers it is, to, is the, again the total, the total care, the total person, how, how to help them uh, in, the, in, in, this, in their totality in supporting them uh, during this journey that they're on at end of life. So what would you include
0: in a spiritual assessment?
1: So um, basically it would include what their beliefs are, um, the, the, do they have a community faith um, leader uh, that we can call upon to uh, support them. Um, what are their rituals? Uh, what's the um, the importance of their faith? Um, what are their faith traditions? Um, how often do they need uh, visits? Um, how often does their clergy visit with them? So one of the things I typically ask a person is, um, do you, again, do you have a faith leader and um, do, are you part of a particular institution and does that leader come visit you? Or someone from the institute, do they come visit you? And they'll say yes or no. Or they'll say, well, would you like me or like us to come and provide that support to you? And they'll say yes or no. And the other part is um, helping, them, helping them to reflect on their current condition. So one of my questions I typically would ask is, um, what do you think about your, your diagnosis? And what are your thoughts about your prognosis? And then they'll begin to to explain, and then I'll ask, you know, uh, what are your goals at this point in life? Uh, One story stands out to me. Uh, There was a uh, patient I had years ago. Uh, She must have been in her 70s, and she had end-stage colon cancer. And so she was at home, and so it was my turn to go out and visit with her. So the, the nurse had seen her, the social worker came out, and did their visit, and so it was my turn. So I get out there and I'm meeting with her and I'm, my question is, you know, you know what, 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 what regrets do you No, no, I didn't, I with, I didn't start with what regrets. I asked her, again, my typical question, what's your, you know, how do you feel about your diagnosis? How do you feel about your prognosis? Do you have any regrets about life? And then she says, she paused and said, well, why are you asking me all these questions? And I said, well, um, what's your goal? She said, well, my goal is to get better and go back to work. And I said, do you know what your diagnosis and prognosis is? She said, yeah, yeah, I know. My doctor told me my doctor told me that you guys are gonna come in, make me better, and I'm gonna go back to work. And I said, well, what kind of work do you do? She said she drives school buses. She loves the kids. She had been doing it for like thirty some years. She was ready. She wanted to go back to work. And I said, I said, well, why don't you talk to your doctor first before we go any further? That way, you can get clarity and get a better understanding before we move any forward, move, move forward. And so she said, well, listen, I'm a realist. You tell me what's going on with me. And I began to explain to her. I said, well. According to our records and we know you have stage four colon cancer and typically with someone of with your prognosis um, typically do not go back to work and uh, she had a son who uh, had some intellectual disabilities but you know he was functional he had a job and also it was just him and her and so when I told her about you know you're typically gonna go, go back to work we're here to support you she sat back in her chair lit a cigarette <laughs> and said okay Thank you for telling me. So I left and then for the next couple of weeks she scheduled lunch and dinner appointments with all her friends, but never told her friends that she was dying. And so one day a friend of hers came over to her house, she was non responsive. They called 911, she gets transferred to the ER. Just so happens I was on call that night as the chaplain and uh, they said, well, we, we want her to, we want, she wants to come off, they, they want to bring, take her off a of hospice and I said, well, sure, I'll get there. So I get to the, to the ER and talking to the son and the friends had kind of talked him into taking her off of end-of-life care. And, um, you know, I just kind of, I did my educational piece, but he wanted her off and either we had to respect that. And unfortunately, she ended up dying a few hours later in the ER when that wasn't her desire. But again, but she never, her friends never knew what was, uh, what was going on. But in hindsight, I can say that's probably how she wanted to go, you know, with people not saying, oh, we're sorry for, that you're feeling this way. And, you know, and, and the son even asked me to serve at her memorial service. And there, she was Jewish, Jew, they were a Jewish family. And they said, hey, we want you to come and you do the service for us. And so I was able to, I was with them from the beginning of her journey in the End of Life Care to the, to the end of doing her burial.
0: Thank you so much, Chris, for sharing that story with us. So the spiritual assessments um, with patients' faith community, how do you integrate that into the patient's plan of care?
1: So, um, it, it, so every visit, again, we revisit to see how they're doing spiritually. Um, are they in, in any type of spiritual distress? um is there anything we need to be concerned about um there i've had patients like for example another story of a patient who he had told us initially that his religious preference uh he was muslim and so he had a cousin who was his next of kin and um he was actively dying and i remember i was assigned to go see him and be at his bedside and so um he had reported to the social worker, based on the social worker's assessment, again, seeing him, he said that he's not Muslim, he's Catholic. And so I'm at his bedside, he's actively dying. And again, I, I, at this time point, I had seen many people die at that point. And so he was actively dying, breathing, you know, began to, to uh, decrease. And so um, right before he took his last breath, he raised his arm up. And he dropped it and took his last breath and so his cousin comes we call him say listen your loved one has passed away you know we're here to be a support to you so he come to the to the where he was and uh, I told the cousin I said well um, your cousin told us that he was Catholic And and the cousin said no he wasn't Catholic he was Muslim and so there was nothing more for me to say, because I didn't want to re- refute, because that's the only thing he knew. So he didn't, he didn't see him, and he didn't hear him say that he had changed his religious preference. And so, again, when someone, when someone changes that, we often ask why, and not really why, but what's, what may be the reason you're choosing this at this stage in the dying process? Uh, and we just try to support them in whatever a person's preference is basically so
0: So what's the most difficult question you've been asked by a
1: patient Dr. Halsey Mm. the most difficult question that I've been asked was um, where am I going to go when I die what's going to happen to me and I often say based on your faith tradition, whatever their faith tradition is, if they are Christian, you know, Christians believe in heaven, then I'll say you're going to heaven. Um, if you are um, of another um, faith tradition, like I know um, I had a patient years ago who was uh, Buddhist, what a Buddhist? Buddhist, yes, Buddhist. And she was in a nursing facility and um, the family believed that when the person dies, uh, that the spirit gets up, gets dressed, and goes to the next life. And so the family put winter clothes. It was in the, it was in the wintertime. They put winter clothes in the bed with the patient. So it was hats, scarves. Uh, it wasn't a coat in there. Um, but the family would gather, and then they put newspaper over the mirrors in her room. And uh, they said that we believe she's going to be fine. And she had, for lack of a better word, she kind of lingered for a few days. And so the nurses still had to come in and do care. And some of the nurses wasn't as sensitive. And so I had to teach them. It was, she was at a facility, a long-term care facility. Had to remind them that like, this is their tradition. And I said, well, we can't have all these things in the bed because it's, it's in our way. <laughs> And uh, I said, well, this is what brings them comfort, uh-huh. you know. And so again, again, the most difficult piece is where what's going to happen to me when I die. And I don't, based on a person's tradition, whatever their answer is, what they what they believe. But I always say, well, I don't, I don't have an answer for that. Um, where do you believe that you're going to go? And whatever they say they're going to, that they believe, then I support them in that in that way.
0: And that's insight for all of us that are listening, to be able to, you know, understand that answer, that we don't always have the response. Right. Absolutely. And that that's that's okay. Right. Yes. Thank you for sharing that. So Connie, is there any additional questions that you see?
2: I think the one question that we just didn't go to a little bit is, is, so what do you do when somebody's in existential crisis?
1: so you we call it in chaplaincy uh we call it ministry of presence like we talked about earlier just being there you don't have to always say something i know we live in a culture where we can't take silence you know everyone something has to be said or done but it's okay not to say anything you know it's okay to be quiet for example say you have someone who Years ago, I had a, a, a couple who uh, lost their children uh, in a fire. Uh, three, two of their children uh, was there, and, and the three, it was five total five kids that died in a fire, unfortunately. And three was the cousins of the two kids. And as for me, I had just had my kid. My kid was a newborn. And I'm here trying to support these grieving parents. What do you say? to someone who just lost all their kids. And you have, you get to go back home. I get to go back home. My kid is home, sleepy. I get to hug her and kiss her and love on her, where their kid are gone. They, they can't hug them anymore. They can't touch them anymore. What do you say? Nothing. It's nothing you can say. You just be there. You just be present. And for me, that experience, Help me to be even more present with those who don't really want advice. So some people really don't want advice. They just want you there. And if you're, and you, you just follow the, 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 the cues of the, of the person who's leading. If, if it's the patient, they may not want to talk. It's okay. I, I used to have a patient who they just wanted someone there. I used to just go into his room and sit with them. You know, he didn't need anybody to talk to him. He was fine with that. You know, uh, or someone just wants music. They don't want you to be blabbing all the time, <laughs> for uh-huh. lack of a better words. And so um, just being present is the most important thing um, that not just as chaplains, but just as clinicians in, in this work, end of life work, just, just being present, especially when someone's grieving. You know, I remember I had a patient years ago not years, a few years ago, who uh, he, had, he had died uh, at, the, at the, the inpatient unit. And the daughter was there when he passed, and I remember I just kind of walked in. Uh, he had just passed, and I had just pronounced him, and walked in. And uh, I can tell she really didn't want me to talk. She didn't want me to talk. Um, she really didn't want me there. She didn't say it, but her body language told me this. And so I walked in, walked back out, grabbed the box of tissues, walked in, handed her the tissues, stood there for like five seconds, and then walked back out. And then when she was ready, when I felt that it was time to go back in to say something and walk back in, our sincerest condolences to you during this time. We're here to be a support to you. And, and that was it. So just being present is, is the most important thing that we can do. Uh, especially as chaplains as, and, and just clinicians in, in, in the life care palliative and hospice care work, just being present is the most important thing, I believe, uh, that we can do or that can be done. Are there any questions that you could think of that we didn't ask you
0: today that you feel are important to share with our listeners?
1: Well, I would say the one question would be how can the entire team work together? Because, again, sometimes I think I mentioned it earlier on, but it's important for it for our nurses to know um, that the chaplain is part of the team too. Uh, a quick story. Um, I remember there was a, a colleague of mine who uh, also was also a chaplain, and um, there was an issue. There was a person um, uh, dealing with some agitation. And so uh, as well as some anxiety. And the chaplain provided the support, the support that was needed. And end up calling the nurse and say, "Hey, listen, um, this person is agitated. You know, just want to let you know. Maybe there's something that you can do to support." And the the unfortunately, the nurse's response was, "You don't know anything about this." <laughs> and it and that chaplain was so heartbroken, and I had to explain, help the chaplain to, to, to remind the chaplain say, just remind the nurse that you're part of the team, that you do your part, the nurse does their part, and we all work together. So the thing is, how can we work together and understand each other's discipline uh, in in fulfilling the same common goal of providing care to the patient? And so I think just understanding each other's roles is the important piece.
0: And that is the foundation of palliative care. It is an interdisciplinary team approach to care at end of life. And that's, uh, thank you for bringing that, that question to the forefront for our listeners yes. today.
2: Yes.
0: How do you envision the future for the role of chaplains in palliative care?
1: Um, I envision it to be a forever, uh, a need, a, a need that's going to be there forever. Because typically at end of life, the questions are, what's going to happen to me? Did I, did I fulfill my purpose in life? Um, why is this happening to me? Why now, I'm too young? Or you know, whatever the, the diagnosis is or prognosis is. These questions come up and as trained clinicians in spiritual care, chaplains can answer those questions because those questions will always be there. They'll always come up and it's important for the team to know that there's an expert in the room that can answer those questions, or assist in supporting, not really answer, but supporting the individual, the the patient, in their journey uh, in end of life.
0: So thank you, Chris, for sharing your stories, your experience, your journey in hospice and palliative chaplain care. Thank you for all the work that you do. Uh, you're inspiring to us.
1: Wow, thank you so much again for allowing me to share.
0: <laughs> well, it's, it's a beautiful journey and Connie, I'd like to thank you as well for joining us this afternoon and spending time with us. It's always a privilege to have the experts in the room and the experts sharing stories so thank you. And so this concludes today's podcast and we wish to thank Dr. Halsey for spending time with us as well as thank our listeners for joining us this afternoon as well. For further information about this podcast, please access advancingexpertcare.org backslash podcast corner. And we'll have information about Dr. Halsey. We'll also have information about the, the spiritual aspects of care and some resources that you might could incorporate into your practice. Thank you. Do you know HPNA offers volume discounts on certification exams and HPNA memberships? The Employer Partner Program was established to partner with employers to support your nursing care teams through education and training. To learn more about the Employer Partner Program and find out if your organization qualifies for volume discounts, visit advancingexpertcare.org/employer-partner.